0: Our Father, your word tells us that every good and perfect gift comes down from you, from above. That's not surprising, because everything that we have has come from your hand. You've given us life. You give us breath. You give us health. You give us work. You give us the ability to provide. You are so faithful. You are so consistent. We uh, fluctuate. We go up and down. We veer off course. We come back. Then we veer off course. But you are so faithful. You are so consistent. And you just keep on giving. You just keep supplying. You just keep giving grace. And you give grace to all people. The rain falls on the just and the unjust, even those who deny you, even those who rebel against you. You keep sending them good gifts. Even when we're blind, even when we're dead in our trespasses and sins, you are good. We are thankful that uh, we've heard the gospel, we've heard the truth about Jesus Christ, that he came to save sinners, and that's us, and that he came to rescue us, and he came to make a provision by which the sins which we had committed and we could never pay, He came and died in our place and paid them for us. And as we trust in him, as we call out to him and ask for forgiveness of sins and acknowledge that he is the God of the universe and that only through him that we can have peace with God. As we call upon his name, something remarkable happens and uh, we are... As Jesus said, we are born again. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. And then you put us on a trail of following you. And some of us, Lord, are just getting started on this trail. We've just recently come to know you, and this is kind of new, and we're taking some baby steps, but we want to start running. Some of us have been uh, doing this for a while. and. For us, we don't want to lose heart. We don't want to become weary in well-doing. We're all at different points on the trail of following you. Some guys are here and they're considering following you. They haven't given much thought to you, but because of some circumstances and situations in their life, you've gotten their attention. We're so glad they're here. We ask that you'll give each man here tonight exactly what he needs. But we really don't need to ask that because that's what you always do. How grateful we are. Teach us, instruct us, encourage us. Give us us hope regardless of where we are. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So tonight we're going to kick off a new series. It's going to be um, a series of, we're going to look at some different guys in the Bible here in the fall. And the overarching theme that I would give to this series, I'm going to call it uh, Godly and Gutsy. Kind of a different title. I had to chew on that even thought about changing it even yesterday, but I'm going with godly and gutsy. Uh, gutsy. Uh, we know what godly means, um, but what about gutsy? Uh, gutsy, I, uh, you know, it's always good to pull out a Webster dictionary. And let me give you a definition of gutsy from Webster's dictionary. To be gutsy, G-U-T-S-Y, is to be marked by courage and determination. One more time. To be gutsy, G-U-T-S-Y, is to be marked by courage and determination. Christian life is not an easy life. It's a hard life. So it takes... uh, It takes guts to follow Christ. It takes determination to follow Christ um, because it's a hard life. It's not an easy life. It's not a country club life. It's not sitting at Starbucks all day drinking lattes. It's, uh, it's, uh, it, it's dealing with the hard stuff of life. Uh, but it's just not gutsy that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about being godly, which is interesting because we all start out ungodly. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's everybody. We're all sinners. Uh, we're all in need of God's grace. Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the truth of the gospel. But at a certain point, when the Lord gets a hold of us and he opens our eyes, what happens is uh, we 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 run into him. <laughs> and, and he grabs us. And we find out who he is and we find out the gospel. 1 Corinthians uh, 15. This is the most important thing in all of the world. Paul said, For I delivered you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. I mean, this is critical to get this. I delivered you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. That means he died for my sins. That means he died for your sins. That Christ died for our sins, <clears throat> according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he arose on the 3rd day, that he appeared to Peter, then he appeared to the 12, then he appeared to over 500 at one time. They saw him. They saw him. He goes on and says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if there's no resurrection, if Christ didn't come out of that tomb, if he wasn't dead, and if if the Father didn't literally raise him from the dead, he says, then we're fools, and we've been duped, and we've been conned. None of them recanted. Many of them died for their faith because, you see, they had seen the risen Lord. It was true. They, they, They had touched his side. They had felt The nail scars in his hands. Uh, This is either true or it isn't. Um, This series Godly and Gutsy, what I want to do is I want to look at some different men in the scriptures who started out just as we started out, ungodly, but uh, they ran into Christ and he changed them. If any man is in Christ, he is a a new creature. Old things, all your stuff. Old things have passed away. doesn't matter how much stuff, doesn't matter how bad the stuff was. doesn't matter. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Why? Because you've encountered Christ. He's given you a new heart. Now you're born again, and now you're going to start this process. Uh, once you're born, the name of, once you're born, the name of the game is to grow. So this is the Christian life. We're following Christ. So, um, why am I doing this series, Godly and Gutsy? I, I'm, I'm doing it, once again, the definition of gutsy is, is to be marked by courage and determination. Um, it's been easy in this country to be a Christian uh, for a long time but the playing field has shifted, and the playing field has changed, and it's changed uh, quickly, it's changed dramatically, and as a result, um, those who follow Christ are no longer appreciated. Those who follow Christ are no longer looked at as uh, people in the community who are to be um, embraced and who are key players in the community because of their belief system, because of how they live their lives, that's all changed. Now to be a follower of Christ, you're under suspicion. Now to be a follower of Christ, uh, you must be a hater. Now to be a follower of Christ, you're going to get opposition because um, everything's changed. There's massive rebellion against the things of God. And if you belong to Christ, you're going to get some of this. It's just where we are. So, to be a Christ follower in this day and time, different than even 10 years ago, for sure 20 years ago, for sure 50 years ago, this is a whole new ballgame. And so, to be a follower of Christ, and by the way, it's not that we're godly, but when we come to Christ, what happens, because he died in our place for our sin, he who knew no sin became sin for us. When we are born again, the righteousness of Christ is transferred to us. And we're in the process of being conformed to the image of Christ, so we are in the process of becoming like the Lord Jesus. It's a slow process, but we're maturing, we're learning. We uh, we take three steps forward, then we take two steps back, but it is a process of growth. Um, if you're a follower of Christ, the times in which we live and what. And what our families need from us as men is that they need us to be men um, who are marked by courage and by determination. Because this is not an easy road. If you're following Christ, you're going upstream, always. You're never going downstream. Following Christ is not a lazy day on a river, uh, on a tube, just floating down with the current. You're always swimming upstream, always. That's the Christian life on this earth. Now, I've said this before, I'll say it again. If you weren't depressed when you walked in here, allow me to help you. (laughs) But I don't need to tell you any of this. You sense it, you're dealing with it. It's just where we are. Uh, As we start this study, and we're going to start tonight with Paul, who, by the way, Paul was used to write more of the New Testament than anyone else. Paul was uh, the apostle that wrote Romans and wrote these great epistles. Uh, He was a godly man. He did not start out a godly man. And he did not start out as Paul. He started out as a man named Saul. And he wasn't godly. He was ungodly. I'd like you to turn with me. Here's what we're going to do. We're eventually going to get to 2 Corinthians. But instead of taking just a straight shot, I thought we'd take the scenic route and kind of go the back way. So where we're going to go first is uh, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. So Paul is finishing off his first letter to the church at Corinth. Church at Corinth uh, was very much like... uh, uh, Their culture was very much like... uh, United States a hundred years ago when the push was west and a lot of people with a lot of drive were taking big risks and big chances to get some land uh, in Oregon or to go to California or they'd pack up the wagons and there was opportunity and there was a lot of action and you had a chance to improve yourself and you had a chance to make some bucks and and some guys made it and some guys didn't and you got grave markers of this day on the Oregon Trail. But there was expansion and there was opportunity. That's the way Corinth was. Uh, it was a seacoast city, so there was a lot of immorality, there was a lot of idolatry, and the the gospel went into the church at Corinth, but they were an immature church. So Paul is writing them and he's always teaching them and instructing them. You get to 1 Corinthians sixteen thirteen and he's finishing the letter And we've discussed this in here before. And he gives them kind of four, what I call them, just four jabs. Just one boom, 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 boom. Uh, Just summing up everything. And he says to them, number one, be on the alert. Secondly, he says, stand firm in the faith. Then he says, act like men. And then the fourth one is be strong. The third one is what I want to focus on here, because it gets us back to the whole issue of being uh, gutsy. Uh, when he says act like men, it's the Greek word in and, andrisomai. It's a frequent command that is in the Septuagint. Now, that's a big word. Let me just tell you what the Septuagint is. The, Septuagint, uh, the, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. But at a certain point, they took the Old Testament that was written in Hebrew and they turned it into Greek. That's The, the, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. That's all it means. So the way we can get some words, we we can learn about words if they were used in the Septuagint. Andrisomai was used in the Septuagint, and as we look at the way that was used in different contexts, uh, when he says act like men, the idea was he was encouraging men, especially soldiers, to act with courage and strength and obedience to the Lord and with confidence and power. So the whole idea of act like a man from a Christian's perspective, to act like a man is to demonstrate courage. Uh, that's what men are for. Men are to lead their families. That takes courage. Men are to protect their families. That takes courage. If I, uh, you know, this has happened to you, I, I remember hearing a noise at 3 a.m. in the morning downstairs. I said, Mary, go check that out, will you? <laughs> that's not what I said. That's not what you do. You don't ask your wife to go check it out, you get up and go check it out. Uh, You're the protector, you're the provider. Well, gee, I don't know what's down there. No, you don't. So you're gonna have to have some courage to go down there. Uh, It takes backbone to be a man. It takes backbone to lead a family. It takes backbone to start a business. It takes courage to take risk. It's just, it's manhood. But we're so far gone, In this day and age, we've got a lot of confusion about that. Uh, Let me go to 1 Kings 2. In 1 Kings 2, David is about to die. He is giving the charge to his son Solomon, who is going to take over the throne from him. And in this charge that he gives to his son Solomon, again, 1 Kings... 2, verse 1, as David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon his son, saying, I'm going the way of all the earth. Now watch this. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Demonstrate that you're a man. And then he tells him what that looks like. Because he's not just to be a man, he's to be a man of God. We use the term man of faith. It's kind of a convenient term if someone wants the vote of the Christians. He's a man of faith. The question is, faith in what? And what's your character? What do you really believe? What do you really like at home when no one's around? Okay. I'm going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Now watch what it means to show yourself a man in the context of following the Lord God. Okay? He explains it. He's going to explain it to his boy. Keep the charge of the Lord your God. These guys are living in a day and age surrounded by idols. Surrounded. We're living in a day and age surrounded by idols. To be a Christian man means that you keep the charge of the Lord your God. How do you know what the charge is? By being in the Word, by being in the Scriptures. That's why you're here tonight. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, watch this, to walk in his ways. Not to talk about his ways, but to walk in it. To actually take what you believe and apply it daily as you walk through life in your business, with your family, with your wife, with your kids. Uh, This would correspond with Deuteronomy 6, where he's talking to fathers. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall talk of them when you walk by the way, when you sit in your house, when you rise up, when you sit down. See, in other words, it's just not a faith that is external. It's just not a faith that is, uh, oh, yes, I'm a Christian, we go to church. No, it's integrated into your life. You're walking with him. You're walking in his ways. You're following the Lord Jesus. This is what it means. To walk in his ways, Watch this. To keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, his testimonies. In other words, to keep what he says in the word of God. Uh, this Deuteronomy 32. What's in the word of God, it's not an idle word for you. It is your life. It's your life. There are a lot of different ways. There's all different paths. There's all, God only has one path. That's it. Period. It's, it's a narrow way. It's not broad. It's not diverse. It's narrow. It's specific. It's Jesus. Jesus said, no man comes to the Father but by me. That's pretty pretty specific. So you keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, his testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses, that's all they had back then, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you return, so that the Lord may carry out his promise, which he spoke concerning, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so to be, a, in our context, a Christ follower, you're a guy who's following the Lord, you're integrating the truth. He's your God. You know, money used to be your God, not anymore. You know, fame, success, prosperity used to be, whatever your God used to be, Jesus is your God. And you're following him. It takes guts to do that. Okay? Now let's go to Acts nine. In Acts nine, we meet Saul, who becomes Paul. We're we're getting um, a little bit of pushback from our culture. If you're a Christian, we're getting light light stuff. In the Middle East, they crucify Christians. They behead Christians. You know about this. What we've got is, um, is minor stuff. In the book of Acts, in Acts 9, uh, Isis was at work in Acts 9. Just like they're at work in the Middle East. They didn't call it Isis, but they called it, uh, they called it uh, Saul. Saul was Isis. I'll show you that next night here. Now, Saul, who became Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So in villages in the Middle East or in certain parts of Africa, if you're a Christian, you'll wake up one morning and somebody's painted a big letter in on your little <clears throat> abode. In. That means you're a follower of the Nazarene, Jesus. They come in and they mow Christian men down if they don't convert to Islam under pressure. It's convert, it's deny Jesus, or die. That's serious stuff. That's what was going on here. And the guy instigating the whole thing was Saul. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for the letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's the way of following Christ, both men and women, didn't matter, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Uh, This guy was on a a search-and-destroy mission. If you were a believer in Christ, he was coming after you. And as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, well, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The word persecute means to, uh, it means to hunt down. I am Jesus, who you are hunting down. This is really wild, because he's hunting down Jesus, and Jesus shows up and hunts him down. And then Jesus makes an announcement. And Jesus doesn't ask him to come forward at the end of the uh, service and respond to the invitation. Jesus just shows up and says, here's how it's going to be from here on out. (laughs) Pretty much what happens. Because, you see, the fact of the matter is, we don't want Jesus. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. What we want is our way, our path, our will, our plan, our own God. So Jesus just shows up. Here's the guy who's hunting down the followers of Jesus. And Jesus shows up. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? Why are you hunting me down? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you are hunting down, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city. He doesn't ask him if he wants to. He just tells him what to do. (laughs) And this guy is all ears. And he's all eyes, even though he can't see. Because he he, he has run into Jesus Christ, the Lord God Almighty. Best thing that ever happened to him. Best thing that ever happened to you and me was when we ran into Christ. He ran into us. He captured us. He saved us saves us from ourselves, saves us from our sin. Get up, Jesus said. Enter the city, it will be told you what you must do. And I sure hope you decide. He didn't say that. It's going to be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, though his eyes were open, he could not see anything. Leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. He was there three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. And then there's this guy named Ananias, who's a disciple at uh, Damascus. The Lord said, Hey, Ananias, this is 10. He says, Here I am, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I'll do, oh, yeah, I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. I'll, I'll go to Africa. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'm kind of literary license here. <laughs> and then the Lord tells him what he wants to do. <laughs> You've got to be careful of telling the Lord, You'll do whatever he wants you to do. Uh, Now, whatever he tells you to do, do it because it'll be better than anything you've ever planned for your life. But it's probably going to shock you and stun you and awe you, and you're not going to want to do it. Because his ways are not our ways. 11. And the Lord said to him, all right, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen a vision. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias, you, come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And Ananias said, uh, <clears throat> uh, Lord, I have heard from many uh, about this man. They knew about him. These guys were online. They were getting email. Well, they didn't have that, but they still had their communication system that traveled quickly. Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And watch the detail. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. He knew the whole scheme. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Now watch this, 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. Uh, So Saul becomes Paul and goes through an amazing transformation where the great uh, hunter of Christians became the great advocate of Jesus Christ and the great teacher of Jesus Christ and the great apostle of Jesus Christ. But you can't miss the role that suffering was going to play in the life of Paul. I, I would make a statement to you. I'm trying to read that clock, okay. I would make a statement to you. It may surprise you at first, but I think it can be proven. In the Old Testament, there is no question that the man who demonstrated the greatest suffering, hands down, more than anyone else in the Old Testament, was who? It was Job, hands down. I think a case could be made that in the New Testament, Paul was the Job of the New Testament. His suffering, his afflictions, were so far beyond the norm. He was called to suffer. As we look at Job, when guys, when the bottom drops out of their life, when they're, when they're just dying inside, when they're discouraged, they're, man, I'm in Job. Yeah, excuse me, I've been reading Job. You're in a hard place, aren't you? Oh, man. And so you read Job, then you read Psalms, because in Psalms, David was in all these hard places. Bottom dropped out of his life. He was disappointed. So, so when the bottom drops out and you're suffering, uh, you're, you're going you're to read Job, and then you're going to be reading about uh, David when the bottom dropped out of his life in Psalms. And you see, um, well, in the New Testament, the, the guy who was the king of suffering was Saul, who became Paul. Um, it, it's important to understand that because, and, and you got to ask that question, why the suffering? Why the suffering? Um, a, a real simple answer, but I think a real true answer, is that the most important lessons that we learn through life learned from suffering they're not learned in prosperity they're not learned the greatest lessons are not learned when you get a promotion the greatest lessons and, and God is so good to us and he shows us such favor and he shows us such mercy it's astonishing but if all he does is give you good stuff you're going to be spoiled he doesn't want spoiled kids no more than you do so Job says Job lost everything. Job tore his clothes. He worshiped. He said, the Lord gives and the the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, that's going to be our experience. Because what he wants to do in our lives is that he'll, he'll bless us. He'll bring favor to us. But at times, to get our attention, because we're prone to wander, he will take something away to get our attention. And we'll be in some affliction, you see. But there are lessons to be learned. There are lessons to be learned in the depths that you learn nowhere else. Okay. So now let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Because in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians is the most transparent book that Paul wrote uh, about his own life. He was under attack from the church at Corinth. for different reasons. But um, th- this is kind of an autobiography. It, it uh, he, he really gets into his own life, uh, to what he was dealing with. If, if you follow football, and you're over 50, you know who Raymond Berry is. Now, when I was a kid, uh. You know, a lot of guys collected baseball cards. I had baseball cards, but, man, I had football cards. In fact, when they'd bring off those tops football cards down at that drugstore, because I always ask them, "When are those football cards coming out? And I'd save my money, my allowance money, and when they brought out that whole set, because that lady, I kept driving her nuts. When's that thing coming in? And I'd ride my bike down there, and then I remember she'd say, it just came in, Steve. And, man, I'd fish out that money, and I bought the whole set. The whole thing, and I could tell you pretty much the starting lineup of any NFL team. There were only 12 teams back then, in the 1830s. <laughs> they were just 12 teams. My favorite guy, uh, I had some favorites. Raymond Berry was right at the top, because Raymond Berry was, uh, he's a Hall of, he was a Hall of Fame receiver, uh, coached the Patriots for years. Uh, uh, Tom Landry said Raymond Berry engineered the position of wide receiver. He had lousy eyesight. He wasn't real fast. He didn't have great physical gifts. He had great hands, but he didn't have a lot of other gifts that other guys at that level who play. But he worked, and he thought, and he he watched film before coaches watched film. Uh, Raymond Berry uh, had 88 moves that he would put on defensive backs. 88. <laughs> there are guys who play wide receiver today who drop more balls in one game than Raymond Berry dropped in his entire career. And it wasn't because he was naturally gifted; it was because he worked. He would stay after practice. He would get guys to throw him balls low, high, that, that catch one hand, this. Uh, uh. The guy was a legend. His dad was one of the greatest coaches in Texas high school football history. His dad coached five years at Corpus Christi and then 25 years in Paris. His dad won a lot of games. He has a statement in here. Uh, In the book, he's talking about the Texas high school football playoff system. And here's a paragraph. He says, the significance of the Texas playoff system in my day was that at the end of the football season, there would be only a few undefeated teams left in the entire state. My dad said that meant that you learned most of your football from getting beat. I underlined that. You learn most of your football from getting beat. Most teams aren't going to have un, un, uh, undefeated seasons. He goes on and says, "Well, my dad told me that, that stuck with me. He stressed that the lessons you really soak in are the ones that come from defeat. I applied all of those lessons that I absorbed from my dad throughout my career. Was he always successful? No. Did, did he get beat? Yeah. But see, if and we get beat. We get beat up. We screw up. But see, if you'll learn the lessons, ah, I want to give you six principles on, uh, on courage from the life of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. I think I'm gonna we'll probably be back in this study next week with Paul and Second Corinthians. But for tonight I'm gonna aim for six. Uh, and once again, one of the first things that was ever said about Paul to and Anais, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer. Uh, we're going to suffer. We're probably not going to suffer at his level, but every guy in here has affliction. You have hardship. You have something in your life you wish that wasn't there. You wish you could be rid of it. You wish it was gone, but you're in it. Okay. And may I say this? The longer you in, you're in it, the more susceptible you are to losing heart. The, the more susceptible you are to being discouraged. But the name of the game, as you're following Christ and you're going through good times and then you're going through hard times, is, is to learn the lessons and to develop, and to develop courage, to develop good courage, and to develop determination. Now, I want to show you this process uh, that there is, a, there is a pattern to the sufferings, there is a reason for the sufferings. If we'll learn, we'll develop courage, we'll become more mature, we'll become better leaders. And I want you to see how this works in Paul's life in 2 Corinthians. So the first lesson is this. Uh, God's developing... If I was going to put a heading, I would, I would go, God is developing, and then I'm going to give you some principles. So God is developing, number one, a courage that endures and learns the lessons. In your life, in my life, in Paul's life, God was developing a courage that endures and learns the lessons. Uh, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 3, Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now watch this. The Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Of all comfort. Who comforts us in our affliction. So that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Real quick, flip over to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Paul doesn't normally do this, but he's having to defend his apostleship, and he gives these guys some kind of a summary of some of the stuff he's been through. He says in eleven twenty-three of 2 Corinthians, now I don't know what you're dealing with. What's in your life that you wish wasn't there? What's the hard stuff in your life? Compare it to this list. He says, "Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I am more so in far more labors and far more imprisonment. How many times have you been imprisoned for the gospel? You say, well excuse me, no, it wasn't, I, I've been in prison but it wasn't for the gospel. You know it's amazing how many guys come to Christ in prison? because they come to the end themselves, and they run into Jesus Christ. Paul says, far more imprisonment. Watch this. Beaten times without number. Were you ever in a fight in high school, or college, or at an elder meeting? (laughs) (laughs) Just thought I'd throw that in. I mean, just for fun. Um, Have you ever been in a fight? You remember it. And maybe you won the fight, maybe you lost the fight. Paul says, um, I've been beaten times without number. I can't even remember how many times I've been beaten for the gospel and for Christ. I mean, he couldn't count Uh, I've been often in danger of death. You ever been in danger of death? Maybe you did a tour overseas. Maybe you're in Afghanistan, Iraq, Vietnam. You know what that's like and you're glad it's over. Paul went through that his entire life. Often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. You know I was 39 and not 40? Because 40 would kill you. They would whip you to the point of death, and then they'd stop. That didn't happen once, it happened five times. So if Paul took off his shirt, his back looked like ground round. He probably had internal bleeding at night. Probably uh, blood. Yeah. makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, I'm not a doctor, but you read those symptoms, you would think. Three times I was beaten with rods. Now, he can remember that because it was rods. It was different. Uh, Once I was stoned. Iconium. They took those rocks, and they just pummeled his body and broke bones in his body, and they walked away because he's a dead man and then Christ raised him up and he walked back in the city and preached again. That's that's gutsy. That's courage. That's determination. Uh, Three times I was shipwrecked. The night and the day I have spent in the deep. i have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, Dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food, often without food. In cold and exposure, apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Okay. Go back to 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3, and I would say and ask you, and I'm asking myself, what's the affliction I'm dealing with? What are you dealing with? Now, watch this. Notice that he's not angry at God. Notice that he's not mad at God. Notice that he's not bitter at God. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, God of all comfort. Uh, comfort here is the comfort of his presence, of the presence of God with you in your affliction. Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, watch this, I will fear no evil, for thou art, what? With, with me. me. Whatever you're in, whatever you're going through, he is with you, he is there. Whatever it is, you're not alone. He may seem far off, but he's right there next to you. Uh, Psalm 37, he is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. I've used that verse with many men over the years at conferences who break down and start weeping because they're just absolutely crushed by their circumstances and they're always embarrassed. I've told you this before. And I say, you don't have to be embarrassed. you got a broken heart. (laughs) Guy can't even talk. you got a broken heart, man. Yeah. You know why I gave him that verse? Because I was given that verse when I had a broken heart. I I can tell you where I was. I can show you the pew I was sitting in in that little tiny church, and I found that verse. And I underlined that sucker, and I read that verse, I don't know how many times, for how many days, for how many months. He is near to the broken heart. You know why I kept reading that verse? Because it seemed he was so far away from me and distant and not concerned, but he's near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. He'll save you. He may not bring you out of it right now, but he'll teach you some lessons, and after the lessons have been learned, he will bring you out, and you will be better. You'll be more mature. (laughs) The Father of mercy is the God of all comfort. Watch this. Watch this. Who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. Have you ever asked God to use you? Well, hold on. If you ask God to use you, you're going to go through this. Because the way that God uses us is that He's going to, we start following him. Oh, Lord, I want to be used. But you see, usually what that means is he's going to take us through some hard things that we don't want to go through, that we wouldn't choose. We're going to have disappointment. We're going to have heartbreak. He's merciful. He's going to be kind in so many ways. But he's got to kind of take you through boot camp. And you don't want to go in boot camp. But you're in the army now, man. You're following Jesus. So you're getting up at 4 in the morning. You went to bed at, at 1230 a.m. And you, I mean, you know, that bugle goes off. And you Oh, my gosh. And you're back at it. And you're worn out, and you're exhausted, and I mean, you know, and but you're learning lessons in boot camp you don't learn anywhere else, aren't you? You don't learn those lessons at the Ritz-Carlton that you learn at boot camp. Watch this. Verse 4. Uh, actually, verse 5. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours, in abundance. He's got a lot of suffering. Uh, Acts fourteen twenty two through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. You, you've got affliction, you've got some suffering, not on just one front, probably on several, maybe more. Some guys more than others. I don't know. For just as the suffering of Christ are ours in abundance. Watch this. So also our comfort is abundant through Christ. It's abundant. It's the idea is there. It's overflowing. If you're in affliction, the 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 comfort, the encouragement from Christ is its overflowing. It's Niagara Falls. It just roars. The comfort of God just roars. It keeps coming. He keeps encouraging. He's with you. Why? So that you can be used with someone else. If, if you've never been broken, if you've never hurt, you can't be used by God. Because you haven't received comfort, you haven't received that grace. I remember before I went through that depression, I would have people come in, and I was just a young guy, and they would come in, and I'm really dealing with depression, and I had no clue what they were talking about. I didn't have a clue in the world what they were talking about. Was I helpful to them? Uh-uh. I, I, I mean, I thought, I mean, what's wrong with you, man? Uh, and then I went through the depression. Six, but if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring. Do you see that? In the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. So do you suffer? Yes. Does God comfort? Yes. Are, are, are there seasons of suffering? Yes. They have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And then God brings you out, and you have a moment, you have times of of peace and where there's just exceptional favor, and enjoy that. Thank God for those times. But no, there's probably going to be another set of waves coming, and there's going to be some suffering. But see, now, here's the deal. When those new things come, because God has been so faithful, you can face those now with more courage because he got you through what you thought you'd never get through. Your focus is on him. Let me give you the second principle. Uh, God gives a courage that admits weakness. He gives a courage that admits weakness. We have this idea about manhood that if you're a real guy, you never admit weak, you never admit weakness, you never admit failure, you're you're just always strong, you're always together, you always got it. Okay, look at verse 8. We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. We don't know what it was, but it was huge. We don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively. When he says burdened, he means we were weighted down excessively. It was a massive weight. It it was crushing. We were burdened excessively, watch this, beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life itself. Um, I had a day when I went through that depression where I understood for the first time why someone would take their life. Because the weight, the crushing, the disappointment, the... I mean, I really felt my life was over. I, I just didn't see how I'd recover, how God could ever put my life back together. Uh, I, if the Lord had a, said, hey, go get in the car, get on the freeway, I'll have a tractor trailer, hit you head on, and marrying the kids have got life insurance. Um, I wouldn't have done it Uh I could understand why someone would the weight can be so great you lose all hope and you don't want to live we despair. and you know when i read that that paul and then i found that verse that paul that paul wanted to die you know what that did that helped me that encouraged me you know what that did that comforted me when i read this verse to know that the great apostle paul had a time where he was so burdened that he despaired even of life itself That affliction in Paul's life comforted me. Is that not bizarre? (laughs) Because oftentimes we think guys that, you know, are up there and teaching and all that, they don't go through anything. Oh, they go through stuff. You see? Everybody goes through stuff. But the fact that Paul would be honest and admit his weakness and admit what he went through, I went, oh, my gosh. God got him through it. Maybe I'll get through this. In fact, I will get through it because, you see, there's a third principle there. But he he was man enough to admit it. You don't walk around every day, hey, how you doing? Well, let me tell you my weakness. That's not how it works. But there will be moments and there will be times where God will make it clear to you, here's a time, here's a situation, you you should admit your weakness. You should have someone in your life that you can share your heart with in your struggles. Uh, I, I, driving over here, I just heard of someone who was killed, Uh, and I, I met them some, I don't know, 20 years ago, and I remember this individual coming to Bible studies and conferences, and then I remember this individual, some things coming out of a hidden life of uh, not really uh, following Christ at all. And it was a pattern, and it went on, and there was discussion, wouldn't listen. Uh, Walked away from the family, walked away from kids, really walked away from the Lord. I got that text as I pulled into the parking lot. it's not just admitting weakness but it's being teachable you you can't walk through life by yourself you can't be John Wayne by yourself John Wayne wasn't John Wayne I I I read John Wayne's biography and when he got cancer you know what he was doing he was talking with some folks he wasn't riding his horse off into the sunset man he was sharing his heart with some people and asking for help and asking for prayer Okay. third principle God gives here we go a courage to understand the reason for the trials let me say that again if you're in affliction God will give a courage that understands the reason for the trials and that's in verse 9 but I want to get 8 and read it together with 9 For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, that we despaired even of life. Verse 9. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Now watch this. So that... Here's the purpose. Here's the purpose of suffering. So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Because, you see, our tendency... It's to trust in ourselves. So, you see, there's a reason we go through this stuff. Because we, it, we all have gifts. We all have abilities. Uh, when God forms us and fashions us in the womb, he'll give you aptitudes. He'll give you strengths. But he doesn't give you everything. You have strengths. You have weaknesses. That's why you need other people. But oftentimes what happens when we have success we start taking credit for the success. Uh, If you've had financial success, you should remember Deuteronomy 8.18. It is he who gives you the power to make wealth. If he didn't give you certain gifts, you couldn't have that wealth. If God didn't give you certain abilities in business, if he didn't give you certain abilities with people and negotiating skills, if he didn't give you certain things, you you wouldn't have had that success. Uh, First... um, Corinthians 4, 7. And what do you have that you did not receive? Any gift, any grace, any mercy that you have in your life is a gift from Almighty God. Yet we tend to take credit and we tend to trust in our aptitudes and our abilities and our plans and our ability to... See, we tend to trust in ourselves when he gave it to us all in the first place. So what he has to do, he takes us through this affliction, he kind of wakes us up, hey listen, listen, and you reach the end of yourself, and you, I've made a miss of this thing, I'm in the ditch here, why do we get in the ditch? So that we may not trust in ourselves, but in God, who raises the dead. And you'll get to a point, maybe in your life, where you think you're finished, and you think you're dead. And as my old pastor Ray Steadman used to say, resurrection power always works best in a graveyard. Dead in business. Dead in relationships. Dead here. Dead there. Dead there. Boom. Resurrection power. You think you're finished? You think you're dead? And he comes out of nowhere and delivers. You've seen him do it. He'll do that your whole life. Until death comes, you go, oh yeah, death. And he'll deliver you from death. Because he owns death. But you got to understand. You see, you got to understand the reason for the trials. So you go through stuff, and you learn not to trust in yourself. And then, and then, as you you know, you come through some of this stuff, and you start watching yourself. That I not trusting myself. I I try to pray every morning. I try to pray two things. I, I try to say, Lord, let not the foot of pride come upon me. Don't let me get proud. Don't let me get taken with this or this or this. Apart from you, I can do nothing. The other thing I try to pray is do not let me wander from thy commandments. Keep me right with you. Don't let me be stupid. Let me don't let me take this exit. Don't let me take this off ramp over here. Let me follow you. But see, when you go through stuff, it's so that you will not trust in yourself. So the next time a situation comes along and you've been through some stuff and you start to trust in yourself, you go, oh, wait a minute. Oh, Lord, 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 all right. Lord, help me. I need your wisdom. What do you want to do here, Lord? What do you want to do? Show me what you want. Not what I want. What do you want? Because you see, Lord, I say to you that you are my God. As for me, I say that you are my God. This is Psalm 31. I trust in you, O oh Lord. My times are in your hand. See, and you learn. You learn from the times you didn't trust him. Am I making any sense? And because you've learned, and he was faithful when you didn't trust him, so now you've you got a new stuff, a set of afflictions coming. You can walk ahead into these afflictions with courage because he's been faithful and he's been good. And you see, all these things develop courage. Okay. Oh, my gosh. And I just lost heart <laughs> reading that clock. I was really doing well. All right, I'm going to give you these last, uh, I'll give you the last three. God gives a courage that comes from confidence in God. D- did I just do four? Did I give you this? No. See, I skipped. So I'm in better shape than I thought. See, usually you give the point and then the explanation. What I just did was, I gave the explanation. And now I give the point. If you're dyslexic, it makes a lot of sense. (laughs) So let me give you the fourth point that you get. He'll give a courage that comes from confidence in God rather than ourselves. That's what we just looked at. Number five. He gives a courage that endures and understands the process. A courage that endures and understands the process. Because there's a process. Real fast, flip over to 2 Corinthians 4. If you were here a couple Sundays ago, I touched on a couple of these verses. But they bear repeating. Look at verse 7 of 4. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. They used uh, clay pots. Uh, Clay pots were sort of like... uh, when commentators said, they were sort of like uh, takeout boxes. Uh, you'd use them and then they would break and then you know, they had all kinds of them. We have this treasure, the treasure of God, we're the earthen vessel. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God, not from ourselves. Now watch this. Paul says, we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed. Are you perplexed about anything? You're perplexed about where this country's going? It's perplexing. He says, I'm perplexed, but watch this. But I'm not despairing. I, I, I know Christian guys that are absolutely in despair over what's coming. They don't know what's coming. They're absolutely freaked out. Well, there's nothing wrong with being perplexed, but you don't need to be despairing. If you know the Lord, no reason to despair. We're persecuted, he says, but we're not forsaken. He, he, verse 9, Paul, who used to hunt them down, now he's being hunted down. We're standing for Christ. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken, no, because the Lord's with me. Uh, We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Uh, The great scholar Merrill Tenney kind of reworked these, and here's how he came up. You know those four little principles there that Paul says? Merrill Tenney says, we are squeezed but not squashed. We are at a loss but not at a loss. See, that's being perplexed. I'm kind of at a loss, but I'm not at a loss. Because God's in charge. Third one. Uh, Yeah, we're, we're, we're hunted down, but not forsaken. Fourth one. We're knocked down, but we're not knocked out. It takes courage to keep going on, but you keep following the Lord. You keep getting up in the morning and getting your scriptures. And get calibrated with the Lord as you start your day. give you one more here, and we're done. It's courage. God gives a courage that endures from seeing the big picture. Flip over to 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16, 17, and 18. This is really important. Uh, Again, a couple of Sundays ago, I referred to something Martin Lloyd-Jones called the acid test in the Christian life. The acid test. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the acid test of your Christian life is not when you're at a retreat center somewhere uh, reading a book or you're on vacation or you're discussing over coffee, you know, the things of the Lord. Uh, He said the acid test, and Martin Lloyd-Jones ministered in London for years, including World War II. He said the acid test is when you're in a bomb shelter and the Luftwaffe is dropping bombs and you're wondering if they're going to hit you and kill you or kill your kids. That's the acid test. Or when you're a soldier and you're in combat and you're in battle and you're not sure you're going to get out of this firefight, that's the acid test. You see, or some great calamity hits you or something. Am, am I going to survive? You see, it's life-threatening for you and your family. That's the acid test. Notice what Paul. By the way, Paul was in the acid test. And note what he says. 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. To lose heart is to lose courage. He didn't lose courage in this. Therefore, we don't lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. Watch this. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. I'm going to go back to that. How in the world can that be? He looks at those sufferings, all those sufferings he listed, he calls them momentary and he calls them light. All those things he went through. How did he do that? We'll look at the next verse. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The way that Paul developed courage through all this stuff he was going through for Christ is that he didn't look at the things that are seen, the things we see on this earth. I've said it before, we live in a secularist culture, secularist education system, secularist government. Secularism believes this is the only world that there is. Jesus said there's another world. That's why Paul, as he went through this stuff, He wasn't just looking at this world. He just wasn't looking at the things that that could be seen, that he was in prison, that he was beaten. He wasn't just looking at that. He's looking at the things that are unseen in the next world because this is not the only world that there is. And when you realize that your life doesn't end on this earth, but that you will live forever, either in heaven because of the fact you've repented and trusted in Christ alone, or if you refuse him, you'll be apart from him forever. That's what Jesus said. But you will live forever. Paul goes back now and he says, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Now here's where you get perspective, and here's where you get courage to keep moving on. He does comparison. Think of a scale with two trays... Okay, so Paul takes his affliction. He had a lot of affliction. He puts that in one tray. What about, what's your affliction? Put your affliction, which you don't want. It might be Lou Gehrig's disease. It might be a broken marriage. Might, I don't know what it is. Put your affliction in that tray. It's heavy. It's difficult. He doesn't say it's not significant. It's hard stuff. It about crushed him. You put that in. But then what you've got to do is you've got to put something else in the scale. You've got to put the eternal weight of God's glory on the other side. Psalm 16, you will make known to me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand, there are pleasures forever. Forever. So you take where you are right now. That's all you can see because it's there. But you got to get your eyes off not just what you see, but what you can't see. That you're going to have eternal life with Christ and the glory and and, and, he, and what he does is he makes a comparison he, he calls his affliction light light it was crushing he calls it momentary momentary you've been in this for years this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory so you take your affliction You take your stuff and you compare it to eternity I'm in this I want out of it you're gonna get out of it maybe sooner than you think you don't know that's in God's hands but you see you got to take your stuff right now and you got to weigh it in terms of forever and when we leave this life and we're in the presence of Christ and you're and there's no pain there's no sickness there's no sin there's no nothing there's just fullness of joy and you're there for millions and millions and billions and billions and billions and trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of years, you're just getting started. That eternal weight of glory, you put on one side of the scale with where you are right now, and it'll give you courage to keep going. Because you see the big picture. And by the way, in the interim, he is with you. And he won't leave you, and he won't forsake you. So we'll keep following the Savior. And he will keep sustaining and holding us up. So Father, thank you. Encourage us. Everybody looks pretty good in here. we got guys that are broken. Don't let them lose heart. Put courage in their heart. Don't let them be isolated. Put some friends around them who love Christ. Who can help them. Because we don't walk this uh, Christian life by ourselves. You send them out two by two. Encourage us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.